Welcome to the CMS Real Deal podcast, where we take a step back from the legal nitty gritty and provide insight into issues affecting the property industry. I'm Danny Drummond Brassington, and today I'm joined by Roland Smith, fellow colleague who heads up our Scottish hotels team, to discuss the state of the Scottish hospitality market. Roland, welcome. Good afternoon, Danielle. Sorry, um, I should say hi, Danielle. Hi. <laughs> um, Formality is absolutely fine. Um, It's really great to have you on the podcast today because it's quite a perfect timing given that we've now got 2020 behind us. Um, Sense of optimism in 2021 as the vaccination um, rollout gets gets underway. Um, And really, I've been reading that the press are all... uh, all excited about 2021 could be the year of the staycation and all sorts of other um, hot topics about when are we all going to go on holiday again. Um, but before we sort of delve into what you think lies ahead, let's um, let's just take a, a moment to to look back. Now, last year was a was frankly a, a roller coaster ride for hotels with the pandemic and Brexit. Is it going to be a trade deal? Is a no trade deal? So, uh, so what are your thoughts? Yeah, a roller coaster is exactly the right way to describe it, Danny. Um, even before lockdown actually started, hotels were already seeing a dip in business and leisure travel. And that wasn't just internationally, but it was even within the UK too. And that was due to the sharp falls in consumer confidence as COVID was spreading right across the globe. Lockdown itself then, of course, led to an almost immediate closure for most hotels, um, except for those that stayed open to support key workers and foreign visitors who found themselves stranded in the UK, waiting in flights to get uh, back home. Uh, And although we all went into the first lockdown as one, the different nations within the UK came out of it at different speeds. And we've had a patchwork of different tiers of restrictions across the country since. And that's created a huge amount of uncertainty for hotels and difficulty for them to do much in the way of forward planning. And with almost all hotels currently closed, we've yet to find out what the full impact of actual real life Brexit is going to be. Yeah, it's a fair point. I mean, I think uh, the economy's not really opened up yet for us all to really experience uh, what Brexit really means. I know there's a lot of... um, um, sort of issues around the edges and you know news topics about certain sectors, but uh, I think 2021 will be when we really see um, how that plays out. Yeah. Um, you talked about you know lockdown one. We're obviously in lockdown number three. So we did have a sort of period over the summer last year when there was a little bit of respite um, and we weren't always stuck in our bedrooms working or homeschooling or whatever we're doing. Um, So did that summer relaxation give some respite to the hotel industry? Um, Yes and and no, I guess. Um, for this, if you look at the city hotels, 2020 was generally pretty bleak throughout. Um, one hotel owner with an asset in London described the city as being like a ghost town to me. And that was at the start of October before English lockdown number two even started. Um, and hotels in other cities across the UK have also tended to perform pretty poorly too. Uh, the August Christmas and Hogmanay festivals in Edinburgh, they were all cancelled in 2020. That in turn meant limited tourist footfall. Um, I remember walking down the Royal Mile in Edinburgh one evening last spring. It's usually one of the busiest streets in the whole of Scotland. I had the whole place to myself, not one other soul on it. Absolutely astonishing when you think about it. Um, PwC 
um, did some analysis towards the, the tail end of last year. They reported that occupancy in Edinburgh down almost 50% year on year. Um, ref par, that's a hotel industry term. It means revenue per available room. That was down from just over £77 in July 2019 to just over £28 in July 2020. It's a bit eye-watering, isn't it? Um, and last year was set to be a bumper year for Glasgow in particular with COP26, that's the United Nations Climate Change Conference, due to happen last November. And there was talk of budget hotel rooms going for over £400 a night during the conference. That business, that was a lost. Well, I say lost. Um, COP26 has been rescheduled for later this year. Uh, so hopefully a bright light still to come for Glasgow hoteliers. Yeah, I think, and it's it's sort of understandable, isn't it, about cities because we haven't really been in the offices. Uh, and you're absolutely right to talk about each nation of the UK doing something different. But I think that's probably one of the cons constants um, across all of them that nobody's been in the offices. Um, but that's not to say that I think some regions haven't done better and maybe the sort of tourism, staycation kind of market. Um, so did were there pockets that did see a bit of um, uh, different activity or increased um, business last year? There were, yeah. Lots of lots of us took holidays in coastal and country destinations. Um, even as late as September, hotel occupancy in Inverness, Cornwall and the Lake District, all above 80%. Did you manage to get away, Danny? I did a UK holiday to the Cotswolds. Um, so yes, um, definitely. And I think that we exactly the same again this year. I'm not not uh, not planning on flying a, flying abroad. In fact, I haven't even got a passport at the moment because it lapsed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the the trend over the past few weeks and months, it, it really has been to try to drive down international travel in and out of the UK. All the concerns about the the, the variations, the mutant viruses that are that are going across the, the globe. Um, so we're recording this on, what day is it? Monday, the 18th of January. Uh, and we saw the latest stage of that process on Friday um, last week when Boris Johnson announced the abolition of the travel corridors. Um, I do think you're right, uncertainty as to how and when those restrictions are going to be lifted may well drive more staycation activity in the UK uh, this year. And if the UK vaccination programme, which you mentioned at the, the head of the podcast, goes well, well, it certainly seems to be at the moment. Uh, we may even see domestic tourism in the big cities like London and Edinburgh making a decent comeback this summer. Yeah, no, great. I, I took a walk around Covent Garden on um, New Year's Eve day and it was um, actually the sole purpose of taking the kids to show them Covent Garden because it was empty. Um, and actually you see uh, scenes like that in London that you hopefully probably won't see again um so what about your work roland i mean you do hotel transactions um i guess this roller coaster rides impacted on on deal activity or am i wrong no you're right um there is still appetite to buy and invest in hotels out there though um some funds are trying to reduce their existing exposure to retail property for example and um, that's not been a new 2020 thing uh, but the virus has definitely accelerated the trend towards online shopping and not yeah, every absolutely. retail asset is going to be fit for purpose for the new experiential retail world that we're entering um, but funds still need to put their money somewhere um if you look at the history of humankind over the decades and centuries, there's ever increasing travel horizons. I do think we will look back on all of this as a bit of a blip, albeit it's turning out to be rather a long blip um, in a continuing trend of ever more travel. Um, so you asked about transactional activity. We did see some 
um, for example, in hotels in the north of Scotland in 2020. Um, and I'm told that the valuers in those deals, um, they felt able to extrapolate the performance during the summer right out across the year to avoid a dip in the hotel values. Um, and there have also been some positive signs of activity at the start of this year. What, what I think we're going to see is a lot of repositioning of existing hotels. For example, in some extraordinarily beautiful parts of the UK, the best place hotels have traditionally been what we call coaching inns and coaching hotels. So relatively high volume of coach guests, but at relatively low rates. The staycation demand last year, that has led some hotel owners and investors to really pause and think can those hotels perform better if rather than serving those coach loads of over 60s, they're refurbished and repositioned to attract a younger demo with lots of disposable income? That could have knock-on benefits, I think, for tourism retail operators in those locations. Um, I do also think as we finally come out of the pandemic, we'll see a trend towards more people seeking more personal experiences on their holidays. Uh, we were already starting to see that before COVID. Um, Visit Scotland um, published a really interesting paper in February last year, um, just before all this started. Um, and they talked about how experience was going to be the name of the game going forward. Um, I do see forward-thinking hotels really capitalising on that by offering tailored experiences to guests and supporting local tourism businesses. So really a, a kind of development of 2020s live like a local when you travel um, principle for staycations. That's quite interesting. So do you think, you know, you're thinking about repositioning existing hotel buildings with perhaps a different experience. Do you think that will lead to changes in the ownership structures of hotels, new entrants? What, what do you see lies ahead? So there hasn't been a huge amount of disruption in ownership so far. Um, and I think there are a few reasons why that is. Um, firstly, if you think back to the very first government support measures that um, were announced in March last year, remember we were all glued to the telly at five o'clock every, every every day, it seemed, um, to find out what, what was going to be unveiled that day. Um, a lot of those very first measures were quite targeted to the hospitality sector. Um, that was very visible. Um, one of the first things that that uh, was announced was, of course, please don't go to pubs. And then the announcement of pubs are closing um, and restaurants as well. So we're all very familiar with furlough now, but at the time it was a bit of an alien concept in the UK. And although the Treasury purposefully didn't restrict the sectors that could use it, it did seem almost tailor-made for the hospitality sector um, and I don't think the Treasury really expected when they announced the scheme that, for example, financial sector companies would be using the furlough scheme en masse. You're absolutely right. The popularity almost of uh, the furlough scheme. And, you know, we even used it for for our childcare arrangements because you um, couldn't, that first lockdown, you couldn't have anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess um, you, know, you mentioned the furlough scheme, but there's obviously been so many more um, sort of support packages and, and some directly aimed at the hospitality sector, you know, the cut in the VAT rate, rate. And obviously, we all remember the summer of eat out to help out and the, the, the success of that. I think we, you know, you find me somebody that didn't didn't take advantage yeah. of that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, those things have all obviously helped, I, I assume. Yeah, they have, definitely. I mean, if you're the Westminster government or the Scottish government and you want to be seen to be distributing money to help business, then hospitality is quite an easy sector to get money to with minimal worries around fraud. Hotels pay business rates, so it's quite easy for government to identify what a hotel is. 
Um, if you compare and contrast that, for example, it's more difficult for government to accurately identify all the self-employed mobile hairdressers across the UK. Uh, now, before everyone gets really annoyed at me, I don't want to suggest for a minute uh, that hotels think that the support they've had is enough. Um, hotels have had a very, very difficult time. Um, what's that phrase from Field of Dreams? If you build it, uh, they will come. Well, just because a hotel has been legally allowed to open, it doesn't mean that everyone wants to go on holiday or travel in business. So as I said earlier, lots of hotels have had a dreadful 2020. But there have been less casualties in the hospitality sector, and I think we probably expected when all this started, Danny. Um, that's not to say everyone is going to make it through unscathed. Um, and we are starting to see some transactional activity that I think is partly driven um, by that. Um, even with furlough and business rates relief, um, hotels still have substantial holding costs. Um, one very experienced hotel owner told me that when it actually came to the first lockdown, um, he learned that his holding costs were much, much more than he had expected. Yeah, I'm sure. Uh, I'm absolutely sure. Um, and what about the banks? Uh, everybody talks about the banks and what role have they got and are they supporting? Are they sitting on the sidelines waiting? Um, what's your view? I, th I think both. I, I think it would be fair to say the banks have generally been kinder to their business customers than they were in the wake of the global financial crisis. Um, why is that? It's partly because governments have been really, really, really encouraging them to be supportive. Uh, but it's also because I think there's a sense that everyone is in the same boat. The lenders have been reluctant to force sales of assets because a flood of assets onto the market, that might expose a lack of enough buyers for them. And that in turn might drive down values, which in turn could give the banks even more of a headache. Lastly, Owners and operators are now seeing light at the end of the tunnel and all this. And when you come to sell a hotel, a hotel that's open and trading, it almost always gets a better price than one that's closed. So there is a determination for many owners and operators, I think, to try to keep calm and carry on. I'm a contentious real estate lawyer and so um, been advising a lot of clients over this time on the sort of other government measures that have been put in place to to protect businesses, um, to protect operators. So I'm talking about the moratorium on forfeiture, the restrictions on winding companies up due to arrears that have accrued during a COVID period. And I think there was a thought that they wouldn't be further extended um, beyond March, um, although I'm sure that's going to be up for a review again in light of lockdown three, which, you know, when the um, previous extensions happened, I don't think lockdown three was really a serious um, um, issue at that time. I guess for me, the big problem arises when the moratorium stop um, and what's going to happen then um, and what the government is thinking is at the moment it's very vague. In fact, I'm not sure that there's anything clear coming out of central government as to what to happen. But I guess that hotels like most other operators are going to have an eye on those those things on the horizon um, and to the extent they're not paid rents, you know, we'll be watching that. I mean, what's your view, Roland? Yeah, I agree with everything you've said there, Danny. I think rents to everything. I think it's the big train that's due to start hurtling down the tracks. And I'm not sure the government really has any idea what to do about it. Um, there has been a lot of kicking the can down the road across the UK with the forfeiture protections that you mentioned. But at some point, you see, that will have to end. 
I think government has been hoping that hotel operators and their landlords and indeed other tenants and landlords um, have been having sensible discussions about rent concessions. So things like switching from quarterly to monthly rent payments to help with cash flow, deferring rent payments, rent-free periods, that kind of thing, sometimes as part of lease regears, for example, an extension to the lease duration. So the tenant gets something out of it, but so does the landlord. Um, and as the people who get asked to legally document these arrangements, we have been seeing a fair amount of them, which is a good and pragmatic sign. And um, from talking to some of our institutional landlord clients, one thing that I think may well come out of this will be that hotel tenants who have been seen to be acting openly, honestly, and collaboratively with their landlords, I think they're likely to be welcomed first to the table by developers and investors in the future for new opportunities. I think that's a very fair point. I think it's um, you know, pretty known out there who has cooperated and who hasn't. And I'm, I say that from both sides of the, the table, not just um, operators, but landlords as well. I mean, there are a number of operators out there who, and I'm not just talking about the hotel world, who are well documented in the press of not paying on and refusing to pay. And, you know, when they want a rent concession, in the next couple of years, I should imagine that the industry, the institutional investors will will close ranks because I think yeah. it goes back to your point that you were making there was that we're all in the same boat. And um, given that we're all in the same boat, it's about trying to work together. And those that have worked together, I think will be a long term relationship. And those that haven't, I think we'll soon see it peter out. So I guess what, summarising, difficult year, ups and downs. We're in lockdown three, slightly, uh, well, not slightly, a lot colder, a lot darker than lockdown one. <laughs> but I guess for me, uh, you know, a sense of optimism that perhaps wasn't there, um, certainly in lockdown two um, with the, uh, so Roland, what's your good news? What, let's gonna let's leave this on an optimistic, uh, optimistic note. Okay, so I have been pleasantly surprised we haven't seen more permanent hotel closures in the UK. Um, I think that speaks to the talent that we have across our hotel sector, its ability to pull together and um, to engage positively with government and other stakeholders. Um, so, for example, Kate Nichols at UK Hospitality and her Scottish counterpart, Willie McLeod, they have been front and centre with government, speaking to the right people at the right time with the right evidence uh, and really getting um, a, a fair chunk of the support that's been coming from government has been going to hotels. And I think it also speaks to the resilience of hotels as a long-term asset class. As I mentioned earlier, I do think long-term we will look back in this as, as a blip, albeit uh, quite a long blip. Um, it's also been good to see that the pipeline of new hotels hasn't dried up, which is something I think that we feared uh, as we started going into this. Um, just take a couple of new hotel developments that I've been involved with over the past two or three years. Um, construction of the 300-bedroom Maldron Hotel, which is being built on Renfrew Street in Glasgow, that's still ongoing. Uh, and that's also the case with the W Hotel that's due to open as part of the £1 billion St James Quarter development that's helping regenerate Edinburgh's East End. So there is clearly still operator and investor optimism about the ability of the hotel sector to bounce back from what has been a very challenging period. Oh, that's, uh, that's good. a good note to end on, Roland. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining me today on the podcast and great to hear some of your reflections on 2020 and your optimism for 2021. Uh, to all our listeners, um, thank you for listening and don't forget to rate us on your usual podcast store. Thank you. Thanks, Danny. Thanks, Danny.